Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. The decades of economic stagnation are creating a sort of rage. And the only way to get out of it is to innovate in our public policy in the same way in which we're able to innovate technologically. I mean, the very idea of a weekend, weekends didn't exist until a little less than 200 years ago. It was an idea of unions that said, hey, instead of just giving us Sunday off so we can go to church, let's also have the day off prior. And that was the concept of a weekend. Pension was an innovation. The first pension in the United States was by American Express, when American Express was actually a delivery company delivering goods into the frontier. These were all crazy ideas when they were first introduced, which became foundational to helping industrialization work. We need, we need some new ideas to make the world of, of today's teenagers work for them when they're in their 20s, 30s, and beyond. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Alec, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. It is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about your work by way of your publicist, but I already knew about it from having heard a little bit about it on my friend Jonathan Fields' podcast. Um, you have a new book out called The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future, all of which we will get into. Uh, but before we do that, I wanted to start by asking you, what is the very first job that you ever had and how did that end up impacting the choices that you have made throughout your life and your career? Oh, my goodness. My first job. So I, I have to pre preface this by saying I grew up in the coal-filled hills of West Virginia. So unlike a lot of places where there are all sorts of fancy jobs, that's not the case in West Virginia. So I worked uh, as, you know, sort of a legal day laborer through a temp service where what I did is I went into a factory um, that was wire rope. So literally the this steel rope that they put on bridges. Um, and I, I worked in a factory for minimum wage, probably a little over three bucks an hour. Mm. 
You know, one thing that I always wonder is what we don't see about what we typically consider blue collar work if we're people who have, you know, what are typical white collar jobs. Um, because I'll tell you, my first job in high school was working at McDonald's and I had this crazy Jamaican lady who was angry, contrary to popular belief, not all Jamaicans are, you know, Rastas who are high and happy all the time. But I'll tell you that the biggest lesson that I got from that job was humility. And I wonder, you know, when you are in an environment like the one that you're in, and I also know that you worked on a, a beer delivery truck from having read the book, what do we not see? That's right. Like, what do we misunderstand about people who work in those kinds of jobs? How hard the work is. I mean, look, I've, I, I worked as a midnight janitor. I worked on a beer truck and a wire rope co- corporation. And, you know, look, I've, I've also worked, you know, as a president, as, as, you know, a presidential appointee. Um, and what I think the big difference between, you know, the boardrooms and the White House and a real understanding of that world is how physically and emotionally difficult it is. I think we oftentimes look at blue collar work as the work done by people who aren't smart enough to get other or different jobs. And if you actually do the work and not just for half a day, you know, not just as a tourist, but for weeks or months, you come to understand how much it demands of you. And it helps you understand the mindsets of folks coming out of that world. So I am, for all that I've done in my life, I think I was as shaped as much by, you know, my time pushing a mop at three o'clock in the morning in the, at a, after country music concerts or delivering beer and really rough hollows, really tough hills where the, the bars are full at eight o'clock in the morning from people getting off the midnight shift. I've, I've been as shaped as much by that as I have by any of the stuff that you'll actually find on my bio. Yeah. Well, you know, I wonder why we don't have the kind of empathy that we should for the people who do this kind of work. Um, you know, I, you know, may have shared this story before on our show. So apologies for listeners who've heard it, but I remember my dad telling me a story once about sanitation workers going on strike in India and India is dirty, especially in the you know seventies and sixties. It was filthy and people basically didn't value the work that those people did because they were considered lower caste. You know, when sanitation workers go on strike, you begin to see, wait a minute, these people are far more important than we realize. Um, how do we begin to sort of, you know, regain that kind of empathy? I mean, I know in a lot of ways, your book really kind of touches on this. So it, there's an actual, there's an economic answer behind this, believe it or not. It's really a product, in my opinion, of the lack of upward social and economic mobility. So uh-huh. there's the answer to this is actually in the story that you told. So given that the caste system was relatively fixed, um, you know, particularly into the, up until the 1990s, when IT really began to take root in India, where you, where you, the economic and social standing you had when you were born was the economic and social standing you had at the end of your life. And in the United States, I think that we had much more empathy for people coming from from lower income demographics when there were more people in power who either A, came from that demographic or B, were one generation removed from that demographic. So, and this is, look, there there are economics behind this that basically show 
you know, the, the American dream, you know, the idea behind the American dream is that if you work hard and play by the rules, uh, you will be better off than the generation that preceded you. As, a, as an economic matter, the, upper, the American dream has been on pause for going on 30 years now. And so the people who I worked with, you know, the, the people who would be sitting on the other side of the table in the White House Situation Room or sitting across the table in the boardroom today are statistically much less likely to have come from public schools in West Virginia or who, or who themselves will have achieved upward economic mobility different than their parents or grandparents. Um, so we've become, we have a, a more hardened caste system now of sorts in the United States than we had decades prior. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny you say that because, you know, my parents having been born and raised in India and then my dad becoming a professor here, I remember when I was first getting started with this sort of journey of, of writing books and doing entrepreneurial things, I was like telling my parents, like, you guys give advice that's all based on conformity. And then I finally started to understand that all their advice made sense based on the context in which they grew up. Because to your point, they grew up in a system where their place in society was fixed. It was either it was binary it's either poverty or security nothing in between and you know that advice made a lot of sense so they told my sister and i to pursue things that would make sure pursue careers that would ensure that we we're well off i didn't listen obviously but um you know things turned out okay now look i mean this is this I, i'm so glad we're having this discussion because it's under discussed and what one of the things that i see thinking of elites and you know it's obnoxious to self-identify as an elite, but just as a matter of education, you know, I'm a business school professor and, and household income, technically I'm an elite, which therefore makes my three teenagers, you know, the children of elites. And what's interesting for me and my wife, you know, I've already said I'm from, you know, the hills of West Virginia. My wife uh, is the daughter of a high school principal and homemaker, is the, the obsession we've had with our own kids, trying to make sure that they do not live with the kind of entitlement and in a bubble um, that we've seen among so many other kids that that are the children of elites, and it's tough. Um, you know, I mean, we sent we live in Baltimore, um, and my kids, you know, who are white. Uh, have all gone to public schools that are more than 80% African-American, that are very, very, very diverse economically. Um, but their experience is such an outlier. And when I talk to my social and economic peers, they almost think I'm insane sending my kids to public schools. Like they, they're like, you, how do you feel like putting your kids into a science experiment? It's really not like that, guys. But it is it is a little scary just the degree to which we're an outlier here. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back um, because there are costs associated with these choices that we make. But it is it's there is a new caste system of sorts of sorts in the United States and moving up to and through different economic classes is much more difficult than it was decades prior.
Yeah. I mean, it, you know, if, if that were the, the you know, argument you're making, I mean, even I began to start recognize that, wait a minute, I'm the son of a college professor. Yeah, he wasn't, you know, doing well when I was growing up. But by the time my sister was in high school, my dad was a tenured professor. And I, I realized, I'm like, that's a relatively privileged existence. Like, there was no question as to whether I was going to go to college and I got to go to Berkeley. Um, and I realized not everybody has those, you know, opportunities, uh, which I think actually makes a perfect segue to talking specifically about your career trajectory which is probably one of the most winding I've seen in all the guests I've, I've talked to so far. Um, there's not a single person that I've had on the show who's had a linear trajectory, but yours really struck me. I just, I kept, you know, I literally was like, if I plotted this out, how do you connect the dots? So how in the world do you go from, you know, being a school teacher to working at the state department to becoming a writer to becoming a professor? What has been, you know, sort of the trajectory that took you in all these different directions? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense on paper, but there is an explanation behind it. I'll give you the short version. So I look, I was a teacher in Baltimore. Um, I actually fell in love with and married the the teacher across the hall. That's the mother <laughs> of those kids of ours. Uh, but one of the things, this is in the mid-1990s, and you know, this is in Baltimore, and it was sort of the stereotype of Rust Belt, old industrial city decline. Um, and when I was noticing my kids, you know, my, the students I taught were anywhere from like 11 to 15 years old. I was like, what the hell jobs are these kids going to get? You know, they aren't going to get jobs in the port, the factory, the mine, or the mill. But one of the things that I noticed was this fish-in-water-like affinity for technology. The one hour I knew that the, the, the students would behave best was the hour we went to the computer lab every week. And these, the 11-year-olds were far more sophisticated about the technology than I was. And so I started a nonprofit, the purpose of which was to help young people in poor and urban communities get access to technology skills that would then become an asset in the workplace. And the way that I went from that to the State Department, so school teacher, running a nonprofit, is we, we did a lot of work on the south side of Chicago. And there was a state senator on the south side of Chicago. And, and I'm going to be rude for a second and just say, when I think about a lot of, you know, state elected officials, you know, it's not, tend not to be very exciting. Um, folks, I don't necessarily always want to spend a lot of time with. But this guy, Barack Obama, who represented this Senate district on the south side of Chicago, who was really into our work, I got to know him. And he had just gotten his ass kicked running for Congress. I mean, just got crushed uh, running against a buffoon. Um, and he was like, I'm going to run for the Senate. I was like, how are you going to run for the Senate? You just got your ass kicked running for Congress. <laughs> and he's like, well, I made a deal with my wife. You know, I, I want to stay in politics and elected office and public service. And basically, I made a deal that I would, I would take one more shot and I'm going to take a big shot. And so I helped him run for the Senate. And then after that, I ran technology policy for his first presidential campaign. And, what, and when it came to the time to say, hey, you got to come work for me. What job do you want? I was like, you know what I want to do? I've, I've spent all my time you know, developing technology strategies and innovation strategies. I want to do this for our, in our foreign policy. So that is literally how a school teacher <laughs> ended up, as a you know, as a, a you know, as a presidential appointee working at the State Department. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. What did you study in, in school? Like, were you, you know, was it anything related to this? Well, look, like any technology entrepreneur, I was a medieval history major. <laughs> um, I'm dead serious. No, look, I mean, I was, I, was a, I was a medieval history major at Northwestern University, and I went into inner city Baltimore as a school teacher teaching like social studies and reading. 
And the way that I arrived at technology was really as a byproduct of my focus on economics. So I was really interested in the economics of my students. And I saw, I didn't, I never cared about the technology in and of itself. I don't see the world through the eyes of an engineer. In fact, I see it in the exact opposite in my books. Both of my books, in many respects, are sort of anti-engineering books. Um, It's more about what are the cultural and social and economic effects of all this technology. But the way that I arrived in this world was as a product in part of having been a history student who was really interested in what the technology's effect on culture and power was. Mm. Well, I definitely want to come back to uh, talking about, you know, working with Obama when we start talking about government in particular. But let's talk about education because you've been a school teacher. Uh, you have helped, you know, kids in schools. You've sent your kids to inner city schools. But one of the things you talk about in the book, and you say this, is that in 2020, Americans collectively owed $1.6 trillion in student loan debt. This debt can utterly cripple students' long-term economic prospects. And Smith's program, I, I believe you're referring to Robert Smith, the guy who basically offered to pay off the student loan debt for it. I don't remember which college it was. Um, this is Morehouse. That's right. In yeah. HBCU down in Atlanta. Yeah. yeah. And it'd be a lifesaver for thousands of students, but it's a drop in the bucket when seen within the whole debt. 43 million students and their families, 1.6 million in debt. It's completely out of reach for philanthropy. No individual can solve such a problem, not Gates or Bezos, if nearly every top billionaire put their whole fortune to the test. That's terrifying. And I'm telling you this as somebody who has a mountain of student loan debt. And uh, how, so two questions come from this. If you were tasked with redesigning our education system from the ground up, what would you change about it so that it prepares people like your kids for the future? And two, how in the hell do you solve this $1.6 trillion student loan problem? Gosh, well, I'll try to give short answers to that because I could talk <laughs> literally for all day about that. Yeah. So, so I'll give three answers. Number one, one of the things that I'm most passionate about as it comes to changing our education system is I actually think too many people go to college. And part of what we've done is define success in the United States by going to college and which college you go to. So in my, in my social circles, if a kid doesn't go to college, the parents are looked down on. They're viewed as somehow a failure. I'm Indian. I can relate. But in, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, oh my goodness, you guys are crazy. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's this academic achievement mentality which look, my oldest son is at Harvard and I guarantee <laughs> you. Yeah. So look at my, my, and I guarantee you my, my second and third kids will go to colleges and quite possibly really fancy colleges. But here's the thing. It's not for everybody. And what we do, oftentimes a lot of the student debt is amassed by people who go to college in part because what the United States lacks. And if I were reforming the education system here, what I would try to build are really great apprenticeship programs rooted in the skilled trades. So just by way of illustration, I sit on the board of a publicly traded Swiss company, and we are are aggressive uh, utilizers of the Swiss apprenticeship program. And these are tremendous, well-paying jobs, uh, technical in nature, but they don't require going to college. and across the skilled trades in the United States right now, what, since, ever since we devalued the skilled trades in the United States, these really good jobs are underutilized. The average age of a master electrician in the U.S. right now is over 60. 
Damn. The average age of a master plumber is almost 60. And yet a really good electrician, a really good plumber makes a lot of money. Multiply this by 30 other uh, trade professions and you, you get similar dynamics. So one thing I would do is I would say we need to focus on the skilled trades. Yeah. The second thing I would say is we need to really focus on making some of the pivots that other countries have made, recognizing that there's certain core content we need, every student needs to know, but too much of what our kids are learning is memorization, dates and names, mm -hmm. and repetition. You know, do 10 pages of multiplication and division, um, made 10 pages of multiplication and division problems as opposed to complex problem solving. Um, and if you look at the, the school systems that perform the best, whether they're the Nordic countries, whether it's Singapore, it's much more applied mathematics. There's much less memorization. Mm -hmm. It's much more interdisciplinary. So I do think that our pedagogy is behind the times in the United States. Um, and then to answer your last question about college financing, this is a case where I really blame the colleges and universities. I think it is unconscionable that systems that have billions of dollars of endowment charge whatever they can get away with mm -hmm. um, in, term, in terms of tuition. Yeah. And it doesn't hurt wealthy people and it doesn't hurt poor people because poor people can oftentimes get needs-based assistance. It's middle-class and working-class folks who get hammered here. And so I do think that the way in which we finance education, where it is a sort of race to the top in terms of cost, uh, is an absolute absurdity. Again, I'll take us back to Switzerland, which is a wealthier country than the United States. The best universities in Switzerland cost about 10% or a little less yeah. than the best colleges and universities in the United States. So we've created all of these grotesque incentives in how we finance education in the u.s uh, well it's funny because um I, I had you know friends from denmark when i was studying abroad in brazil who went to the copenhagen business school and they were shocked that i you know was paying as much as i was for business school because they all were going for free and i remember the dean held a once a semester uh you know like open house for students to come and basically talk and you know and i pretty much took her to task and just grilled her for an hour straight and one of the other students came out and was like, damn, dude, he's like, you didn't take it easy on her. I was like, why would we take it easy on her? She may think the president of the university is her boss, but it's your tuition dollars that pay her salary. So as far as I'm concerned, she reports to me and I should hold her accountable. She left Pepperdine shortly after that. <laughs> um, you know, needless to say, I wasn't popular with the administration when I recommended that they dismantle the career center, divide, you know, all the salaries by of the counselors by the number of students and give us a refund to hire our own recruiters. So I've never been invited back you. to speak there again. Uh, but, you know, point being, uh, Andrew Yang was here. One of the things he told me was that part of the issue that is causing this is the, you know, just sheer volume of administrators that we hire in basically what are bullshit jobs. Even my dad has told me this. He said, the dean has all these other positions like a provost. And I was like, what the hell is a provost? Like, what does a provost actually fucking do? And it turns out that there are all these sort of positions that are created that are all just bullshit bureaucratic jobs that 
you know, students end up paying, you know, the, the cost for. So with that in mind, like, what do you do about that? And then also one last sort of thought on this student loan debt thing, and we'll get into the other parts of the book. Uh, there's a Michael Moore documentary you might have seen called Where to Invade Next. And he goes around to all these different countries looking at various social policies. And he goes, I think, to Estonia, if I remember correctly, where college is completely free. And then he shows what happened in Europe in some of these places when, you know, these colleges tried to actually raise tuition. The students basically went insane and went on strike. And he said, here's what happens in the United States when tuition goes up, which happens consistently. And he just flashes to a shot of students sitting on a lawn uh, at UCLA. So do you think that collective action by students has any power to change this? Like if students all said, you know what, to hell with this. We're not coming to class until you guys do something about this. I don't know. You know, look, I, I'm not going to, I don't, I'm not shy about sharing my views. The United States right now does not have a culture of collective action. We did once upon a time. Now we really don't. We've become collective action. The key word there is collective. Yeah. And we have become an increasingly individualistic society. And so part of why I think the labor movement in the United States uh, right now is is weaker than it's been since, you know, early in the 19th century is because of the degree to which we've individualized our social contract. And the only way to do things like reduce the college of college or graduate school is through, you got it right, collective action. So in a hypothetical based on a theoretical, based on a maybe, that students did to come together and act collectively, could this this produce change? Yes. But it would also have to be national in nature. Right. Because Pepperdine is competing with UCLA, is competing with USC, is competing with Berkeley, is competing with UC Davis, and that's just in California, and on and on and on. So a movement cannot be as localized as movements in the past. Movements, the factory floor, which is where a lot of, you know, labor movements, for example, for example, would have you know, taken collective action previously, that's all distributed. Labor is distributed. Education competition is distributed. So the only way to produce change is in a distributed and organized way that is not rooted in the kinds of strong interpersonal relationships that have driven a lot of past movements. Yeah. It's funny you said because I've had this conversation with my roommate and he said that won't work because people are too driven by self-interest. And I think that that makes a perfect segue into getting like really into the, the core of the book. Um, you open the book by saying the social contract is one of the most basic features of human civilization and every society across the world People have worked for thousands of years to balance the rights and responsibilities of individuals with those of larger powers like states and corporations. The social contract is the accord that sets the balance. It defines the rights of citizens, governments, and businesses, as well as the duties they owe to one another. And, you know, I think that to me, really what you've talked about in this book, the core idea is that the social contract is, you know, basically on the verge of, of, you know, becoming obsolete. Well, you know, the social contract is something that we can't live without. You know, ever since human beings were on two feet and figured out that they would be physically safer if they banded together rather than living on their own, where they may get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, agreements, accords, a social contract has existed between people. But there are times throughout the sweep of history where the social contract has to be substantially rewritten. Uh, and I think we're at one of these moments now. I'll get, I'll, 
you know, I mentioned earlier that I was a medieval history major. So if you don't mind my geeking for just a minute on history, I think of I I think, for example, of this period in 40 years from of 40 years from 1800 to 1840, the period called the Angles Pause, where throughout particularly much of Europe, industrialization was taking root. So technology was changing everything. And labor was going from the farm to the factory, from the countryside to the city. But this was the industrialization of the Charles Dickens novels, 11-year-olds losing their fingers in the factories, people working 14 hours a day, six days a week in cities with soot-filled skies. And what happened? Well, first of all, there was the largest wave of revolutions in Europe's history. There were ideological movements like communism. The Communist Manifesto was written in 1848. How then did industrialization actually work? Well, we, we rewrote our social contract. And what did that mean? What do I mean when I say that? It's like, let's go back to the factory. We say, all right, well, yeah, you can work in a factory, but we're going to create this thing called a minimum wage. And yes, you can work in the factory, but we're going to create this thing called a child labor law. So instead of 11-year-olds losing their hands in the factory, you have to be 16 years before you have to be 16 years old before working here. And oh by the way, if you work here for 25 or 30 years, at the end of that there's going to be this thing called a pension. And oh by the way, so that we can all benefit from the spoils of industrialization, from the benef- the economic benefits of industrialization, we're going to create a public education system which is free for everybody until they're about 18 years old, regardless of what your last name is or what your zip code is. And so we effectively created a new equilibrium in the relationship between companies, governments, and citizens that made industrialization work. But we're now in a new period where the base of our economy is no longer industrial. It's increasingly technology-rich and knowledge-based. But thinking back to my kids, Srini, like I have a 19-year-old, a 16, and a 14-year-old. The idea that they're going to have one employer for 30 years or 25 (laughs) years, and at the back end of that, get a pension, forget about it. Minimum wage. The federal minimum wage hasn't been changed in the United States in 13 years. Wow. Uh, what What that, 13 years. So what that means is since the government isn't changing the minimum wage, Amazon and Walmart are the ones who effectively set the minimum wage. So there's a sort of disequilibrium right now in the social contract. And the reason why the book is, my book is entitled The Raging 2020s, is in the same way in which industrialization wasn't working and caused the largest wave of revolutions in Europe's history and ideological movements like communism so too do I think we're in a moment where the decades of economic stagnation are creating a sort of rage that are radicalizing people in the United States on both the right and left. I don't think it's politically deterministic. And the only way to get out of it is to innovate in our public policy in the same way in which we're able to innovate technologically. I mean, the very idea of a weekend, weekends didn't exist until a little less than 200 years ago. It was an idea of unions that said, hey, instead of just giving us Sunday off so we can go to church, let's also have the day off prior. And that was the concept of a weekend. Pension was an innovation. The first pension in the United States was 
by American Express when American Express was actually a delivery company delivering goods into the frontier. These were all crazy ideas when they were first introduced, which became foundational to helping industrialization work. We need we need some new ideas to make the world of of today's teenagers work for them when they're in their 20s, 30s and beyond. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm sure you're probably familiar with it. Uh, Richard Haas wrote this book called A World in Disarray. And uh, I remember reading it thinking, God, I'm like, are we really, you know, and this was probably like three or four years ago and I read it. And I'm like, we are this close to like massive civil unrest. And of course, I think we're starting to see, you know, that play out. 
one of the things that you say uh, about shareholder and stakeholder capitalism is that right now, our incentives pull us toward a more dystopian Mad Max form of capitalism. The incentives drive companies towards share buybacks instead of investments in workers, equipment, and research and, and development. The incentives drive businesses to grow bigger through mergers and acquisitions than to fire rather than hire. And you say these incentives encourage breaking up unions and sending headquarters to tax-optimized locales instead of to communities that are in a race to the bottom in taxes. The incentives mean refusing to pay even a cent more for renewable energy than fossil fuels. And you say that capitalism is a system driven by incentives rooted in compensation, taxation, share price, and the way to enlist our most powerful capitalists and their companies to act in the interests of citizens and governments is to rewire their incentives, make it in the financial interests of executives, their boards, and their shareholders to be better to their stakeholders. Um, so I think that that... You know, Particularly for me, like it's funny because I, I coincidentally read uh, Roger McNamee's book Zucked the same week I read your book, and I couldn't help but see the overlap. So let's look at this in the context of a company like Facebook, uh, who clearly, in my mind, doesn't act in the interest of stakeholders, especially as a creator in the creator economy. Of like, this is a company that has been built built effectively on the backs of creators who've built their platform all for free without being compensated a dime for it. And now Zuckerberg is like, oh, we're going to invest billions of dollars in the creator economy. I'm like, that's bullshit. You're basically giving people a refund um, for whatever money they spent on ads. And not only that, I have to pay to access an audience that I built and brought to your platform. Yeah, I mean, look, I, so first, some disclosures. First, I know I know Mark Zuckerberg. Um, and so my comments on this will based on be based on some actual interactions with yeah. him. And the second I should say is I'm a capitalist. Like, I don't want people to think I'm in favor of overthrowing capitalism, but I do recognize that capitalism isn't one thing. And in fact, stakeholder capitalism is the form of capitalism that dominated the United States from World War II into the 1980s, the period during which we saw the most upward social and economic mobility in the history of the United States. So when I think about Facebook... And when I think about Mark Zuckerberg, I, I, the first thing when I try to explain to people what the hell is going on with Zuckerberg and with Facebook, the most important thing to understand, I think, first and foremost, is that there's a difference between intelligence and wisdom. Mark has a very high IQ. He's not stupid, but he's not wise. It's really interesting. I mean, he started Facebook, I think he was like 19 years old. Yeah. He was a gazillionaire by his early 20s. He's never seen the world or understood the world um, without getting to it on a private plane with a, an army of PR and government affairs people around him. I really believe that he and the team he surrounded himself with have high IQs but they are willfully ignorant and therefore negligent in stewarding the power of their platform. So I do believe that Mark believes he is, I think Mark doesn't necessarily understand the harm uh, that his products sometimes have economically, psychologically, and otherwise. And there have been times, I mean, a lot of this comes down to really banal things. There are people who have been on the board briefly of Facebook who left because they realize it is a cult of personality that's totalitarian in nature, like Ken Chenault. 
African-American, incredibly successful CEO of American Express. I think he's the chair of the board at IBM, really successful guy. He got on the board and then he quickly thereafter got off because what he was bringing was wisdom and it contradicted the worldview that Mark and a few of his other board members have, Peter Thiel and Mark Andreessen, which is very deeply insular, very deeply Silicon Valley um, at the expense of a wider understanding of the world. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so if you're talking about people like Andres and people like Mark Zuckerberg, it's funny because I, I still remember very distinctly coming across Mosaic when I was in high school. And then, you know, if you're at Berkeley during the 90s, you got to kind of see all of this being built. And, you know, when it all blew up, we always jokingly said it was like watching the greatest party in the world across from the bay, across the bay. And then the moment you got into the city, it was over. Um, so how do you get them to develop a, a wider understanding of the world when they're basically surrounded by, you know, people who are not just like them, you know, where confirmation bias is probably rampant? Uh, like, I recognize that even in, in, you know, my own sort of ecosystem, the people that I talk to, which is one of the reasons I have such a, a wide array of guests, because I don't want to have one view of the world. So this is a case where I'm very pessimistic. Um, And because I do think that when you have that much money and that much power, again, I believe in incentives. There aren't incentives necessarily for these guys to change. Uh, You know, Peter Thiel is a multi-billionaire who has built an intellectual architecture that he believes very deeply in. And it's hard to imagine what would shake him off of that. Um, Mark Andreessen's a little different. I've, I heard from a pretty good source that Mark doesn't have a passport, that his passport expired like uh, over a decade ago and he just never renewed it. Um, he's wow. a genius. I respect, I respect him a lot. But what does it say if it's true that Mark Andreessen doesn't actually have a passport? I think that's pretty interesting. Um, Mark, I don't think is going to change. I just, I don't. I think he genuinely believes and has arrived at a point in his life where he believes that 99 point something percent of the world is just substantially less intelligent and strategic than him. Ipso facto, they can get as angry as they want and he can choose not to care. And so going back to the theme of this, of, of, stakeholder versus shareholder capitalism that I write about in the raging 2020s, we have to reorient incentives sometimes rather than hope for sort of a spiritual awakening. So if we want companies to consume sustainable forms of energy as opposed to burning fossil fuels, ultimately it can't be because of kumbaya spiritual awakenings. It's got to be because of economic incentives. If companies like Facebook are going to change, it's not going to be because Mark woke up in the morning and saw the light. It's going to be because he's regulated in a new way. Yeah. Uh, And I, I, and so I think that we are a world governed by our incentives. Well, look, 
that, that makes a perfect segue to talking uh, specifically about government. You open the section on government by saying that representative democracy is inefficient by design. Political leaders move in and out of power. Policy goals change. Public opinion ebbs and flows. Checks and balances are designed to keep any one branch of government from moving too quickly. Uh, you know, you had a chance to to work you know, up close with Barack Obama. I, I remember reading his biography as, as well as Michelle Obama's. And I, I remember talking to a friend about this. He said, you know, like if you're on the, on the campaign trail, it's easy to make all sorts of promises. But he said, imagine what it's like the first day when you walk into your office and you get your first intelligence briefing and like, holy shit, like this is what I have to deal with. I guess all those promises I made are going to have to be put on hold. What do we from the outside not see about the reality of what you know, the responsibilities are of somebody like Barack Obama when dealing with the magnitude of problems that he deals with. Because, you know, I think that often as citizens, it's easy to feel like that politicians are not acting in our best interest. I mean, I think if anything, you know, the COVID taught us like, how the hell does a Congress spend six months debating unemployment benefits while the rest of the country is like suffering? I mean, there's a lot to unpack in your question in there, but I would start by saying that a lot of what a president of the United States does is unseen by the American people, and that's all for the good. I mean, the fact that there has not been a large-scale terrorist attack on the United States since September 11th of 2001 is a triumph of governance. And everybody who's been president since then deserves the credit for it. But every single morning at your intelligence, any, any normal American who was on the receiving end of what's called the presidential daily intelligence brief, would curl into the fetal, uh, fetal position. So that, that is, as a practical matter, a lot of what a president has to deal with, not just on terrorism, but on environmental disasters, on pandemics. Uh, you know, look at how the Obama administration handled Ebola. It was substantially better than how the Trump administration handled uh COVID-19. So these are the kinds of things that occupy a president. Having said that, it does not, it ought not excuse a lack of action on those things that we need, that we know need to be acted upon. And so there are a lot of reasons that are holding us back from government doing its job. And I write at some length about this in the, in the raging 2020s, but part of what is at the core of it, I believe, is the degree to which you could have a resolution in the United States Senate right now that said, be it resolved, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, and it would be a 50-50 vote. That is how divided a country we are. And we have never been so divided as a country since the Civil War, since literally a war where we were killing each other. This is the most divided the United States has been since that. Yeah. Well, one other thing you say about the United States is the United States has always had a more limited social safety net than other Western democracies. American culture places a premium on individualism and self-sufficiency, which you alluded to earlier. And it tends to look down on 98% of those who receive support from the government. Unlike many other developed countries, the U.S. doesn't provide free health care, higher education. Instead of relying on the state to provide a safety net, most Americans receive benefits like health care and retirement savings through their employer. So what is the role and responsibility of government then in all of this if we're going to rewrite the social contract to 
you know, bring society back to some semblance of equilibrium? So I think that first and first and foremost, uh, we have to recognize that America's greatest strength is also its greatest weakness. Our individualism is in substantial part what drives us as the world's greatest innovators as well. Uh, you know, the very act for if you were not brought over on a slave ship from Africa or born here as a Native American, the very act of coming to the United States was an act of entrepreneurship. The frontier mentality, go west, young man, was an entrepreneurial mindset. And that, so that, en- that enables an enormous amount of wealth creation. The responsibility of government, in part, is to not misalign those incentives, to make sure that we still have all the incentives that are out there for wealth creation, but to create more ac- equal access to opportunity and to make sure that we don't become a sort of oligarchy where we have 30 or 40 people with more wealth than 300 million people. And that is the sort of Mad Max-like state that we've come into if you just look at the data. I mean, I'll, I'll just I'll throw a, a statistic or two out at you. I mean, if we go back, if we go back, I think it's I think it's 40 years, 40 years. Uh, the the top one percent has grown twenty one trillion dollars richer, while the lower fifty percent has grown ninety nine hundred billion dollars poorer and the middle class has stagnated. That data is bananas. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, if the level of inequality had remained the same from the time that I was in third grade to present day, it would mean that an additional 30 billion, I'm sorry, uh, $30 trillion would go to people, would go to workers earning at 90% or or lower in terms of average household incomes, which is $1,100 per worker per month. And everybody says, don't tell stories that have data in it. But for (laughs) me, those numbers, those numbers tell a really powerful story, which is it shows, I mean, think about how much less rage there would be in the United States if every worker earning at 90% average income or below, we're getting $1,100 per worker per month more. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where we've lost the equilibrium. So the responsibility of government here, it's not just, it's not redistribution per se. It's making sure that our systems don't enable a very, 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 very small number of people to reap all the economic rewards of our, of our economic system. Yeah. Well, I mean, you say this about taxes. You say the wealthiest people I know, those worth billions and billions of dollars, pay less in taxes as a percentage of earnings than I do. That's because in most cases they draw some salary, but the way they make their real money is through appreciation of their assets. I, in turn, probably pay a smaller percentage of what I earn over the course of a year than 20-something-year-old researchers who worked for me in the writing of this book, Um, which makes me think, you know, how do you get billionaires to recognize that we live in an interdependent society that is actually causing this tremendous amount of inequality. Because I, you know, fortunately I've gotten to see it, uh, you know, 
from different sides in different parts of the world. You know, when I lived in Brazil, I remember they, there's this economic um, number called a Gini coefficient, which is the sort of yep. income disparity. And Brazil at that time had one of the highest Gini coefficients in the world. And it was interesting because we went to school. With, we didn't realize it until about two or three weeks until we were there. The kids that we were going to school with were some of the richest kids in Brazil. Like they would show up in chauffeur-driven cars. And you know this, given your work. In countries like Brazil and India, when people are rich and people are poor, it's not, hey, my dad's a doctor. It's, no, my dad makes fuck you money. Um, and yep. on the side, his side hustle is is exporting coffee, which, you know, one country exports like three-fourths of the, you know, of the coffee for the world. Like, it's insane. I mean, even in India, you see this, right? When people are rich, they are fuck you money rich, like the Ambani's. Um, you know, like they had Beyonce as the entertainment for their daughter's wedding. I don't understand the Ambani's. I got to be honest with you. <laughs> Neither I mean, do I. Those things. <laughs> no, I, I really, I mean, look, I, let's talk about India. I mean, some of the most grinding poverty I've seen in the world. Yeah. The two places that most impressed me were the refugee camps in the East Congo and the slums in India. And um, if you haven't walked through the slums in India, you don't understand what human suffering is. And so I literally don't understand families with not millions of dollars, not hundreds of millions of dollars, but billions or tens of billions of dollars who don't give anything back. I actually don't understand it at all. Do you know what's even weird, um, weirder about that? Not to interrupt you, but they came from poverty, basically. Their dad was a gas station attendant. I don't get it. I, 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 I genuinely, I'm flummoxed by it. I am absolutely flummoxed by it. Um, and so let's say we can't change their minds, okay? I would hope we could, but let's say we can't. Then you have to change. Then this is this means then that you have to reorient some things economically. So I guarantee you, they have they utilize a variety of different offshore um, financing mechanisms to shield the vast majority of their wealth from taxation. I mean, if you look at the list, if you you know go on Twitter and read the stories about you know this billionaire paid no taxes and yeah. that billionaire paid no taxes and. One FedEx driver pays more in ta federal taxes than FedEx, and one 17-year-old barista at Starbucks pays more in federal taxes than Starbucks. At the end of the day, you have to change the rules because they, what they're doing is they, they're not doing anything illegal. The Ambani family is not breaking the law. Starbucks yeah. is not breaking the law. FedEx is not breaking the law. The, the billionaires who shield their income from taxation, they're not breaking the law. So what do you have to do? You have to change the law. And this is really something that is, it, this is a particular byproduct of the last 20 to 25 years. Part of what globalization has done is it's made capital more global. But in so doing, what it's done is it's created a, a real race to the bottom for taxation. And it means the richer you are, the smaller the percentage of taxes you pay. And that then really enrages the working and middle class who end up paying for everybody. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I think what I, I want to talk about now, you know, to sort of wrap things up, uh, is you conclude the book by sort of, you know, saying where we could end up and you give us two scenarios. One is if we don't change and the other is if we do. Let's talk about what happens if we don't change. Like, what are we looking at? Is the United States going to turn into a developing country or start to feel like a third world country? I don't think we'll turn into, into a developing country, but what we will turn into is something more Mad Max-like, where we will have 
very wealthy people and we will have an increasingly angry and radicalized working class. What's interesting, though, is that America's working class is not unified politically. Uh, Some go to the far right, some go to the far left. They draw, you know, people draw different, different conclusions from all of this. So what I think we'll actually have is a more divided and angry country, because I actually don't think that we have, I, I, we don't have a recent history of class movements. It's not like the work, there's going to be a working class uprising in the United States, because in fact, no class is more divided in the United States than the working class. What I, what I also believe is going to happen, which has already started happening, is the wealthiest Americans are going to detether from the United States. Uh, I mean, as a practical matter, this is already happening. Uh, you know, the wealthy, and look, full disclosure here, I spend probably 50% of my time outside of the United States. You know, I teach in Italy, I sit on a board in Switzerland, you know, we vacation abroad. And a more extreme version of this increasingly is happening with America's wealthiest people, where they have multiple citizenships, their money is parked, their money and their assets are increasingly globally distributed. They're less patriotic. They think of themselves less as Americans than as global citizens. You know, we were talking earlier about Facebook, you know, and Peter Thiel, the Facebook board member, he is now a citizen of New Zealand, in addition to being a citizen of the United States. He's one of the few who's shared that. But I I know that a lot of these people all hold multiple citizenships. And they will live and work at the 38 to 40,000 feet above planet Earth that their Gulf Streams and Falcons will fly them. And so if things don't change and if things get messier in the United States, then they will spend time in the United States in those places that they can and do enjoy that are really catered to their entertainment. And after that, they'll fly to another place like that, that entertains them, that, that helps them live enjoyable lives on another continent. And they'll live in a sort of circuit that travels around the world. This circuit already exists. I see it all the time. Yeah. Um, so, so now, now I'm wondering why, so you, you worked at the state Department. So why is this not like this massive call to action to every single person who works in our government? Like why has every one of them read your book? Like, has Joe Biden read <laughs> well, your book? Like, I mean, I'm just thinking, like, this this should be front and center for, you know, politicians and, and world leaders. Like, in my mind, just based on everything you're telling me, some of this is scary. No, it is scary. And, and you know, I'll tell you, this book just came out, so I doubt Joe Biden has read it. My previous book, The Industries of the Future, there were, I think, five heads of state who told their people to read it, you know, everything from the president of Pakistan to the prime minister of Israel. I mean, I can't think of two people with different politics than that. Um, (laughs) So, so look, I do hope that the raging 2020s gets as big a global audience as the last book did, which was published in 24 languages. But having said that, the, why this isn't easier, why there isn't the call to arms is the conclusions that people draw oftentimes are far different. Um, and in my writing, I don't try to be the voice of God that says, the, this is the solution, or these, this is exactly how you fix the problem. What I try to do is give examples of how different countries around the world are addressing these problems. The, pro- the, the challenge we have is that there isn't consensus 
in the United States. There isn't consensus around any of this. And so part of what we have to do is we have to drive public opinion towards certain points of consensus so that we can then change the rules around it, so that we can make sure that the FedEx driver is not paying more in federal taxes than FedEx, and that the 17-year-old barista at Starbucks is paying is not paying more in taxes than Starbucks. Those are rules that need to be changed. And in order to change the rules, we need to have governing consensus around them. Um, well, so I have two sort of final questions around government in particular. You know, my roommate is convinced that 90% of our problems are because of a two-party system. And I'm, you know, as somebody who worked in the State Department for, you know, a Democratic president, like, what is your view on the role, like, you know, the impact of having a two-party system? Is it bad for democracy? Is it good? Uh, you know, like, what are the implications of that? I think it's I, I think it's good for democracy. This is a case where I strongly disagree with Andrew Yang. Part of what a two-party system has demonstrated in the United States, going back to the 18th century, is that power does move back and forth between the two parties. And, and when a party is in power, it can govern. The problem right now is that it's basically 50-50. What I think is actually the reform that I think that would be healthier than a new political party is something called rank choice voting. Yeah. And what rank, yeah. And if you're, for those Andrew who are wrote about that. Don't, Andrew wrote about that in his yeah. new book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so the problem we have right now for me is less the two parties than it is if you're a Democrat, the people who tend to get the nominations are the most doctrinal. And if you're a Republican, it's the most Trumpian. And so we, we, we create incentives for people who won't compromise or work with anybody else. And I think ranked choice voting would go a long way to fixing that. Yeah. So I have one final question about Barack Obama himself. Uh, you know, I distinctly remember uh, there's an interview he did. It was the very first one with David Letterman on the Netflix show. And he and Letterman are talking about success and uh, they begin to talk about luck. And David Letterman says, you know, while uh, John Lewis was, you know, marching on a bridge in Selma, I was out partying in spring break with my friends. And Barack Obama says that, you know, a lot of people who have worked as hard, you know, as we have and, and you know, uh, and didn't get as lucky. And, you know, David Letterman says, I've been nothing but lucky. And, what I wonder about somebody like Barack Obama is, is what is it that enables somebody like him to achieve at the level that he does to have that kind of charisma, to have that kind of impact on society? Well, first of all, let's acknowledge the power and importance of luck. So I told you earlier in this conversation, I worked with him on his first Senate campaign. Um, after having gotten his ass kicked running for Congress, how did he win? It's not that he wasn't charismatic when he ran for Congress and lost and suddenly became charismatic when he ran for Senate and won. The difference in substantial part was luck. So, you know, one person running against him, uh, it came out that, you know, he was a wife beater, so he was out of it. The Republican who was going to be very formidable, who he was going to run against, it turned out that, you know, he was a swinger and that came out like there were all of these stranger than fiction stories that came out that turned all of these candidates who were supposed to squash Obama like a bug and effectively kicked him out of the race. So we had three or four tremendous pieces of luck. 
So what I would say is, I do think it takes an enormous amount of discipline uh, to achieve at a very high level. Barack Obama could never have become Barack Obama if he didn't waste time. Um, you know, the people I know who are the highest achievers, whether in business, whether in academia, whether in politics, are people who don't spend a lot of time on the couch watching mind-numbing TV. <laughs> um, you know, they are people who they think about the hours that they are awake in, a, in the day and make the most out of it. And that can be recreation. It can be going out with friends and having drinks. It can be making dinner. It can be whatever it is. But it is a conscious choice about maximizing your time toward a given set of ends. Mm. And that puts you in a position to succeed. That combined with the luck that Letterman described and which I saw with my own eyes Obama benefited from puts you in the position to pole vault into the positions of extreme success. So one other question about this, you know, so I know that, you know, they, the Obamas didn't come from like extreme wealth or anything like that. You know, like Michelle Obama grew up on the South side of Chicago. I've read her book. Uh, You know, he, you know, I remember there was a documentary saying where they were on the trail and they're like, we've just paid off our student loan debts. Now, eight years out of the white house, you know, they're people who make millions of dollars. Like if I remember correctly, Michelle Obama's book was the highest advance ever paid out in the history of Penguin. Um, And it was like the unicorn of book publishing. How do people not lose sight of where they came from when they get to that level? I think part of it depends on at what age do you arrive there? So the difference between, say, the, the Obamas and Mark Zuckerberg is Mark Zuckerberg got there when he was 20 years old. The Obamas got there in their 50s, um, late 50s. So, you know, look, I, I think the Obamas, having achieved success when they did in their life, has a lot to do with it. I mean, part of what I find most obnoxious about some of the brotastic con- culture of Silicon Valley billionaires, for example, is they have a very fixed set of reality in part because they were so successful financially so young. Mm. But I actually think that a lot of the people who come out of that community who are the wisest are those who may have enjoyed success a little later, maybe in their 40s. Um, you know, I'll think, for example, I'll, I'll, I'll give a politically incorrect or undiplomatic example. You know, what's the difference between um, a guy like Eric Schmidt, who was the longtime CEO of Google, who's now a decabillionaire and lives like a decabillionaire, versus the founders of Google. Um, and Eric, I think, is, has, you know, contributed a lot more to society than the founders of Google. The founders of Google were grad students at Stanford when yeah. they founded Google, and they were in their 20s when they became billionaires. Eric was middle-aged when he became the CEO of Google and therefore I think is much more philanthropic as a much broader view of the world of humanity than the Google founders who I think believe that 
everybody who's clever or work hard, you know, if you're not a billionaire, if you aren't su- super successful, maybe you're a little lazy or maybe you're a little stupid. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. We had uh, Rich Colgard here who wrote a book called Late Bloomers, um, you know, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with achi- Early Achievement. And that book always struck me, in, you know, in, in relation to what you were saying is, wow, you know, the benefits of succeeding later in life are actually quite significant, which I think, you know, is a perfect way to wrap up with two final questions. How has your definition of success changed with age? Wow. You know, I think the first thing is when I was in my 20s or 30s, uh, or teens and 20s, let's say, teens and 20s, I really think success was defined by position. Like, what's the title? What were you elected to? And now I think it's much more based on impact. You know, there are lots of senators in the world whose lives, from my standpoint, don't amount to shit. There are lots of CEOs out there with big bank accounts who they will die and their lives will have not mattered because they won't have produced anything important. They will not have contributed even to their family in any meaningful way. So now I have a much more impact-based view of what success is than sort of the traditional objective measures of it. You know, when I was younger, I was much more focused on sort of the objective measures of success. Now my measures of success are very different where it's kind of like, all right, well, what did you actually produce? I don't care what job you had. Um, What was the result of that? Amazing. Well, I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? What makes something unmistakable? Uh, I think... I think it is a product of passion, um, of conviction. Uh, you know, I can't help but think that, you know, it, you know, I think back to the words of Theodore Roosevelt, who said, it's far better to dare mighty deeds, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in a gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. So I think of something as unmistakable as being the antonym of the gray twilight. You know, most so many people live their lives, and as Roosevelt said, in a gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat, just sort of going through life slightly dulled no great emotions of either success or failure. And that which is unmistakable, in my opinion, is the opposite. It's what either makes you suffer much or enjoy much. Wow. Um, That probably has to be one of the most thought-provoking answers I've heard to that question in 10 years that I've been doing this. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your insights, your wisdom, and stories with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your books, your work, and everything that you're up to? Well, thank you. AlecRoss.com, A-L-E-C-R-O-S-S.com. My books, uh, The Raging 2020s and The Industries of the Future, you can find them, you, you ought to be able to find them in any bookstore or any of the online websites from Amazon to Bookshop uh, to the others where, where books are sold. Um, my social accounts are at Alec J. Ross. 
And I just really appreciate this very thoughtful discussion that we've had. I, the, the world needs more of these. Mm, thank you. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.